Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. On this episode of Trial and Medical Error, I interview Ryan McKean, the founder and CEO of Connecticut Trial Firm. Ryan is an author of multiple personal injury books, including one of my favorites, Tiger Tactics. Ryan mentors lawyers on how to be uh, better firm owners through the lawyerist and prides himself on the charitable work that he and his firm does. On top of all of this, Ryan is a terrific trial lawyer and talks about the ingredients that led to a recent $100 million jury verdict that he and his partner obtained. Ryan explains the role focus groups played in the case, the importance of scripting your trial, and a unique approach to suggesting a number to the jury that I don't think you'll want to miss. So, uh, without further ado, here's Ryan McKean. Thanks again for jumping on this podcast with me. You know, you have so many irons in the fire and uh, so many things going on. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. So a lot of people, well, that's assuming there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast, but of those who are listening, a lot of them know you in one realm or another that you're involved in. But could you just give us a little background about yourself, where you are from, and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, Brendan, thank you so much for having me on. I'm from Enfield, Connecticut, so I've lived almost all my life in Hartford County, and I grew up, I was the first person in my family to go to college, to go to a four-year school, as my mom will remind me. She did get her associate's degree, which is awesome. I was the first person to go to college in my family, cousins, brothers, anybody in my sort of lineage, and went to college, went to law school, went almost straight through. I worked at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, sort of in between, or and during law school, came out. And I, all I ever wanted to do was help people as a lawyer. Like that was why I went to law school more than anything. So I got a good job working in a general practice firm, you know, the kind of firms that are dying or not existing anymore, where they're the local lawyer. So, you know, people come to them with their problems, whether they need a will, a divorce, they're in a car accident, they're buying or selling a house, they need to evict a tenant, whatever that is. And I got a lot of experience handling all sorts of matters, really. But what I was drawn to was really the personal injury work. And so I was an associate there for about six and a half years. And this was 2012, early 2012. I really started thinking about the future. And I was like, look, you have all this cloud-based technology coming online. And look, life has been good for this firm. They've been in business for 60 years. The partners have done well for themselves. But, you know, what is the next? My career is going to be longer than the next 10 years. Like, what does the next 30 look like? And so that's when I went out. I went on my own in 2012 and started adopting things like Dropbox, for example. And I went into business with a friend that didn't work out as often doesn't work out. And then so a year later, we had split. I was a solo. And then in 2016, I founded a Connecticut trial firm with my partner, Andrew Garza, which at the time was sort of an expense sharing arrangement. And by 2018, we had merged everything and decided to really focus on trial work or doing personal injury work. So let me ask you, you have obviously made amazing inroads into an incredibly competitive market of personal injury law. Can you share with me, you know, I don't know what your thinking was about how you went about marketing, getting cases, and then, you know, what's the structure of your firm? Are you higher volume, but then you kind of pick 
bigger cases out? How is it all set up and how did you get there from a marketing perspective? From a marketing perspective, really what happened is my sort of general practice led me to just like, I just care about my clients. Like I just did good work for them and, you know, put their interests first, did those things. And so what happened is I agreed to take a case pro bono from a probate court for an incredibly wonderful woman who was getting screwed, for lack of a better term, on this ERISA issue from a husband who was then deceased. And I took it and I helped her navigate this and ultimately got her the money she was entitled to under his retirement account. And in the process, what happened is tragically, her daughter was killed in a car accident. She was crossing the road. She gets struck by one car and then run over by another. And that really begins my sort of foray into serious personal injury work. And I like I had done car accidents. I had dog bites, you know, the sort of run of the mill stuff. But this was a heavy duty, wrongful death involved a case against police. And I said, you know, the client trusted me from an immigrant community. And I said, you know, this is what I want to do. Like, I'm going to go for this. So I started doing things like reading David Ball and reading Don Keenan, because it was a question of like, am I going to keep this or I'm going to refer it out? And I knew I couldn't sell this client short. So I said, I'm going to keep it and I'm going to do the work. And if I feel like I can't, or it's too hard, I will refer out. So that was my first sort of wrongful death case. And then what happened is I sort of benefited from sort of a confluence of, I would say, two things. One of which was my firm had a terrible website, completely awful. And I went to them and I said, hey, can I start a blog? And this was like in 2007. And they said, well, how much does it cost? I'm like, get a domain and a WordPress license for a hundred bucks. So go ahead, start a blog. Well, what what would you do on a blog? I'm like, oh, I just write about law stuff. And so I started writing up a blog and I started building sort of just a following organically. I would like to think that my LinkedIn page right now is sort of a continuation of that blog, but I'd write about general sort of legal issues, really written for the public in a way that they could understand. That caught on. I would also share it on social media. And it was a time where Facebook was coming online in like 08, 09, 10, and outbound links were still viable on Facebook. And two things happened. One of which is I became sort of famous in Connecticut because I questioned the credentials of one of the state's top politicians who was running for attorney general. And I was actually correct that she wasn't qualified. People thought I was crazy, but the Supreme Court ruled that I was correct. And so that brought me all sorts of notoriety. And then tragically, somebody I went to high school with, their father-in-law was killed in a motorcycle accident. And it was a commercial case. And that case resulted in a $2.25 million settlement, which was sort of like my first, I would say, really big settlement. The police case is confidential, but I mean, it was also significant, but this was even more so. And, you know, but I started going to all the Keenan Trial Institute stuff. I started doing all these things. I just really developed a, a, a real, real interest. And so I took some of that money and I put it onto Avo at the time. And Avo was giving me like four or five good personal injury cases a month almost at the time for very little money now. I wish I'd probably put more on it. And so that's sort of how my practice at that time got started from personal injury. And the other flip of all of this is all this is going on, just referrals. I would talk to lawyers. They would send me their cases that they didn't want to do. Some PI lawyers would send smaller cases that they didn't want. And I was like, I don't care. This is the work I want to do. I don't want to be doing the family law that I am doing to pay the bills and whatnot. 
So generally, I'm a, a very trial-focused, trial-strategy-type podcast. Can you tell me about sort of your biggest influences when you, you know, you're picking up your first big personal injury cases over the years now looking back, what would you say were your biggest influences as far as like how you try cases, how you think about trying cases and so forth? I mean, really, there's one, it's Don Keenan, for sure. I think, you know, his trial teachings and his insights are great and they resonate with me. A lot of it, you know, I mean, we talk about reptile and a lot of that gets overblown because a lot of it is really good fundamentals of do this, then do this, and then do that. And here's why you do it. And here's what you don't do. And oh, by the way, go do focus groups because that that's incredibly valuable. So I'd say, you know, Don Keenan, but I mean, look, you start reading all these trial books, right? Read a bunch of them and they all sort of drink from the same well. So you've got your Rick Friedman's, your Mark Mendel's. I mean, these are, these are fantastic, fantastic trial lawyers to go read. So yeah, I mean, all of those sort of books become canon in my office for reading Jerry Spence. And so just taking little bits from all of them and, you know, adopting it to whatever the problem was in front of me was, was very valuable. So I think that's a good segue into your truly gigantic verdict that you obtained, which was one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I wanted to talk to you about, you know, just in general, uh, your thoughts and so forth. And you already mentioned focus groups. So I really want to get into that because I'm a huge proponent of focus groups. And I too am a Keenan, Ball, Disciple, Edge, Reptile, and every other book from Trial Guides that's ever been published as well. So can you tell us about, you know, give us a 30-foot summary of this case that led to this just unheard of verdict? I mean, the, the case itself is, is pretty simple. Our client, Mikey Cruz, works in Rexel, which is a warehouse. Rexel is a large multinational company. And basically, you have to think of them almost like a Home Depot for electricians that sells light bulbs and associated electrical products. One of their biggest distributors is Philips North America. They make all the light bulbs. And so what happens is this is one of these that just lends itself to whatever these Mark Mandel profits over people from my trial geeks out there, right? So Philips is actually at the time experienced in 2017, some economic headwind, so to speak. They do a stock buyback. But one of the things that really changes the game from them are these TLED light bulbs. And so this is at the time where there's a lot of like retrofitting of fixtures for energy efficiency, right? And these light bulbs don't need essentially another component. You can put them into an existing socket and you will have achieved energy efficiency as a result of doing this at a lower cost without an electrician, much easier. So these TLED bulbs in the summer of 2017 are very very in demand. And so Rexel orders a bunch of TLED bulbs from Philips North America. And because they have a show at Mohegan Sun, which is a casino in Connecticut, where they invite a whole bunch of electricians, but it's basically Rexel's equivalent of Black Friday. And so what happens is the, Philips gets these shipments in from China and the, they, they get shipped in by rail get brought to a warehouse in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania. And when things are shipped from China, they're not palletized because the wood over there is bad. It would take up space in shipping containers. There could be termites and bugs or whatever. So for a variety of reasons, they don't put things in shipping containers. And so what they use are these things called slip sheets, of all things you can call them. And they use clamp trucks. So a clamp truck you have to think of is like hugging the pallet <laughs> to move the load 
as opposed to what we use, which are forklifts, which uh, go under a pallet. And the other reason for this is economically, reach trucks are far more expensive than forklifts. So these pallet of light bulbs, or these light bulbs come in, they have a, they're on a slip sheet, they're not on a pallet. What Philips has to do is Philips has to take, because they, they have to take the light bulbs and they have to put them, there's 1,300 pounds, they're all banded together with plastic and there's a slip sheet underneath. They have to put them on the pallet and then they have to, what they call, unitize it. So they have to make it all one load, which is they can do it one of two ways. They can do banded or they can do shrink wrap that wraps it all around. So it's one unit. So it doesn't, it can't move separately in shipment. It's actually a federal trucking regulation because you don't want load shifting in transit, right? So what happens is they go and they just put these light bulbs on a pallet and off it goes, right? It saves them, our expert testifies, $5 in five minutes. The light bulbs go to Rexel. I think it's on a Thursday. They go up on a top shelf in the warehouse, which is fine. Like there's no warehouse. OSHA finds actually nothing on Rexel that they did anything wrong. They go up on the top rack. And and as we talk about this event at Mohegan Sun, Rexel is trying to staff up their event for Mohegan Sun. And so what they do is they use a temp company called Spec Personnel. Spec provides a guy named John Paul Baez. And Spec ignores all of the qualifications like they have to do a drug test they have to do this they have to do these different things essentially for the sake of speed they don't do that they furnish a guy named john paul pius and john paul goes and lifts a rat a load on an adjacent rack it catches it shifts the load falls the pallet stays up okay the lamps fall light bulbs fall they they paralyze mikey cruz on the adjacent aisle and after that, Paez goes and they take him for a drum test per protocol, and they find it a significant amount of cocaine in his system. So that's the case. What was your client doing there at the time? My client worked at Rexel, and he was like a front desk worker where an electrician would come in and say, hey, I need 10 LEDs, right? I need 10 TLEDs. Mikey would go in the back and go through the shelves and get the 10 TLEDs and bring them back to the front counter. So he was picking an order at the time. He was paralyzed. Who were the target defendants and what were your main theories? And more, you know, what did the main theories boil down to at trial? The target defendants always were Phillips Signified because it's a failure analysis. And the first in time, the first person who could have prevented this was Phillips. Our expert testified that had they followed the rules, the load would not have fallen. Right. So Philip Signify is always the primary target. And they, it, it just typical failure analysis, ask yourself in any case where you've got complicated causation, who was in the first position to have stopped it? Right. Everybody downstream should be able to sort of rely on the first person doing their job. Obvious second target was spec personnel for negligent hiring, furnishing John Paul Piaz. And John Paul Piaz was also a defendant in this. On the morning of opening statements, as is the case, oftentimes, oh, I'm sorry, we also had a maker, a very lesser defendant, a make the owner of the racking system in the warehouse. They ended up settling out for $2 million before trial, and then Spec and Pia settled out for $6 million the morning we gave openings. Had Phillips offered any money? A joke. They had offered $1.5 million. Just because they felt they were so far removed that you weren't going to be able to prove your case, basically? If I'm being kind, yes. <laughs> yes. 
And were you concerned at all? And did they attempt to defend at least in part on, you know, using empty, you know, the empty chair? You know, you settled out with these two other defendants and trying to cast blame off on everybody else but them. Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And it's a question that we wrestled with internally the most. Because yes, we wanted to keep everybody in. There's no empty chair. There's no, there's no this. And what we basically learned is that when we really put the focus on Phillips, the focus groups were like, Phillips did this, right? They're like, you know, spec and whatever. The, by the way, the drug stuff never came in. Our, our toxicologist got precluded. If I'm being kind to the judge, essentially, if you're going to be high on cocaine when you are high on a drug when you are operating heavy equipment, cocaine is the one that least impairs you. <laughs> Oh, wow. So it was okay because it was cocaine. It's a stimulant, right? <laughs> I, 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 I think our talk should have come in. It was shocking that he didn't. But it's one of these things when you try cases, that happens. A judge rules. Your toxicologist who's from Harvard, who's never been precluded before, cannot come in. But So this is the sort of case we're left with. And you know, you're left with, at the end of the day, first of all, we were able to secure enough money for Mikey Cruz to change his life, which is... With the $8 million alone, right? The biggest... The biggest thing, Mikey never dreamed of owning a house, was put through hell throughout this whole process, and is now able to support himself and not have to worry about money, which is the goal of litigation, period. So when we were able to get that, you know, we knew that the jury would that the jury would blame some onto Piaz and Spec, but we didn't think it was that much because, you know, Piaz was somewhat sympathetic. He was sort of like a person who struggles in life, not to sharp his knife in the drawer. And we didn't want him as the face of this. We wanted Phillips. And, you know, one of the things that my partner Andrew Garza did, which was brilliant, is we never called uh, John Paul Pius in our case. We just were like, this is not about him. But one of the things that had happened was the defense called Pius out of order. Like, it was one of these scheduling things. And our expert testifies and our expert says, look, like had this been wrapped, they wouldn't have done it. And Andrew took it and did one of these Keenan judo things and said, you know, I really wish John Paul Pius was here to hear that. He's, you saw him. He's experiencing a tremendous amount of guilt about this, right? And so we felt pretty good that the jury was going to come back about where they did. It could have been 80-20, but it came back 90-10 on Phillips. And let me break down a few things there. So first, when you said they called him out of order, meaning they called him during your case in chief because of scheduling? Yeah, I think so. My memory's a little hazy of it, but I think there was some scheduling conflict that it was one of these things. It was tried over 11 different days and the judge was a stickler on like filling every minute and coordinating a bunch was hard, but I think it was out of order. So did you have to, I mean, did you take a lot of stuff on video testimonies that you could kind of plug and play throughout, or was it more live witnesses throughout? Almost all live witnesses. When you, the only person we had on video was the client's treating doctor, the physiatrist, who won't testify live. Like he just is like, I, I will never come to court. I'm too busy. And he, in fact, is like world renowned and incredibly busy. We felt it so critical just given the case and the value and the issues involved that the witnesses be live, that we made sure that they were all live. So talk to me about the focus groups. How many focus groups did you do beforehand and lead up to this? And how did you run them? Did you guys do them yourselves? Did you farm them out, a combination? I think we ended up doing 10 of them and also having the recordings, being able to do summaries of those recordings, 
being able to do demographic research on who was favorable and who was not. All of that was just really, really, I think, the most important work of the case. We did our $100 million day in Boston where we taught all of this. And, you know, as we were going through the the planning process for the conference, it was like this whole thing could just be on focus groups. We could not do anything else. And like, that's where all the meat, all the value is. I know it's unfair in a limited episode of a podcast, but I mean, can you give us a sense? I mean, I've talked a lot about podcasts on earlier episodes because like I said, my partner and I are, are big proponents of them. I mean, what's the biggest advice you could give to somebody who either hasn't done focus groups or is not particularly experienced doing them with how to best utilize them in their cases? One, if you haven't done focus groups, you're not doing your job. I'm going to be straight with you out there. Look, if it's a rear-end car accident case and whatever, there's a total possible verdict of 12,000 bucks. I get it. But if you're doing the real, anything that's worth doing, in our opinion, in our firm, anything that's worth trying, like you need to be doing a focus group to do your job. The second thing I would say is like, look, go and learn. (laughs) Like, go to Keenan Trial Institute. I know Andrew Finkelstein is doing something with like Trial College. TLU and Trial College and all these different entities. Sure. Go and learn, or AAJ does something on focus groups. Go and learn how to do that. Because a lot of people, the biggest misconception, Brendan, is that these are mock trials or something. We never, ever, ever touch a mock trial. It's more like we do things like we put a picture of our expert in his credentials versus the picture of their expert in his credentials. And we're like, you know, tell us about this. What do you think? What questions would you ask? Who would you think would be the better expert? Why? And you just sort of tell me what you see in this image. I'm going to play you a clip of this witness. What did they say? What did you learn? And then start sort of unpacking, you know, where they're going. If I give you some basic facts on the story, ask why it happened, what they would want to know, what they would ask of the witness, you know, we would do things. And part of it was like, we had really, really tough stuff. Like I knew that being paralyzed was bad, but I never honestly gave it all that much thought. Like I think like, oh, you can't walk. No, no, no. That's like the least of it. And so we had to go into like, there was a big loss of consortium claim. You know, we had to go into the sex life of somebody who's paraplegic, where nothing works below the belly button. And so it was like, can we go too far? Can we appear to be overreaching or whatnot? So sort of to test those boundaries. They're not terribly hard to set up, you know, but they do require some base level training from somebody who knows what they're doing. So you mentioned you did almost all of your, if not all of the focus groups via Zoom. Was that a product of sort of fallout after the pandemic? It was, it was, it's a product of a few things. One, it's a product of fallout of the pandemic. The second is we were able to get people who were actually more likely to be jurors when we did them during the day and on Zoom. So somebody could log in from their house, they could be working from home and take a long lunch or something, whatever they were doing. But we actually got more jurors, which sort of like makes sense because who's driving in and, you know, doing them at night, which was typically when we would have to do them it sort of limits your focus group participant. May I assume that before this, or maybe before the pandemic, you guys typically did them in person? Yep. And going forward now, will you still do some in person? We always do them via Zoom. All Zoom. And part of the reason why is it's so easy to record these because it's very difficult to run a focus group and get all of the information that you need or pick up on everything. So the ability to record, 
is incredibly powerful. And the other reason why you want to record it was we did it at mediation and we played a clip of focus group participants <laughs> saying a whole bunch of things about the defendants and their various problems in the case. Because the defense lawyers did none of them. And so we, they would say, oh, well, nobody's going to believe this. And we had the clips ready to go. And we were in a, we were in a hotel because there were just so many parties in this giant conference room. And we pay, played a whole bunch of these clips for the defense. And at the time, Speck was offering no money. They, they took a no-pay position. The mediator had knocked some heads that day and pulled together a $3 million package, which was a joke. We knew it wasn't going to settle. But then... We started getting calls from the other defendants who wanted out. It was, oh, two million from venture. Okay. And then it was like, oh, can you do three million against SPAC? And we're like, no, six, six, six. And we ultimately got them there before trial. But the offer started escalating to the point where probably six weeks after our mediation, we had a package that, from various defendants that could have totaled probably 12 million. Do you feel that the I mean, obviously, I think the initial reaction typically when you show focus group video to defendants is they just knee-jerk reactions to kind of disregard it. I mean, I've had, you know, sort of people, oh, well, how do we know these people or what you told them and so forth? Do you think that it is effective eventually, immediately? How does that play out? I knew at the me- we were in this big conference room at the mediation at this hotel. And there are adjusters from all over the country, like maybe even all over the world. I have no idea who these people were, but it felt like there were 35 people around this like U-shaped conference facility in a suburban Hartford Marriott, okay? And I mean, I knew when when they were going to be played during the presentation, and all I was doing is watching. And there was some like, and particularly some of it was like, you know, look, they're, they're a deep pocket. They're multi-billion dollar businesses. They should take care of this guy. And so there was some real fear from some of those people in that room that was palatable on their face. Whether or not they would have got there without it, I don't know. But I can tell you, watching their reactions, there was like, let's wear it this way. It was to the point enough that, I mean, they knew we weren't loving anything. It was, these are the things that you're going to be facing. These are the things a jury's going to be thinking. I remember when Keenan was, you know, touting the importance of focus groups. I think one of the the points was, if nothing else, even if they don't believe the data that you're showing them from it, you're nevertheless sending the message that you're preparing for trial by doing focus groups, which in and of itself can raise eyebrows on the defense side. Defense doesn't like risk. And, you know, these people are even more risk sensitive than I think plaintiff's lawyers by orders of magnitude. And so when you start seeing, and, and again, like we, we had 10 focus groups, so we probably had like 70 participants to cho- choose from. And so when we're doing five minute or five, you know, 10, 15 second clips of seven or eight or 10 different people on this one issue, well, it becomes very hard for the adjuster to sit there and like, just ignore what all of these people are saying to this one point. So in your in your focus groups, do you do all sorts? And in, in as far as like, do you do you know plaintiff and defense clopening, or do you do like the chunking out where you start piece by piece? What do you think next? Ask questions, move on, and so forth. I know you talked about doing specific issue type focus groups. Yep. So we don't do any of the plaintiff and defense. Keenan teaches, and we believe it that we've done something similar at one point. But what Kenan is basically says, and I think is right is that what they're really trying to tell you is who they think is the better focus group. 
And I mean, look, if, if I could have the defense attorney give it, like that would be tremendously valuable, right? But if I'm pulling a colleague or another lawyer at our firm into it, they may just like one or the other more. And that like that's sort of like what it is that they're asking. So I think it it runs the risk of being distortive more than useful. And so what we try to give them a lot most of our focus groups are here, we're gonna give you a little bit of information. Like, okay, here's this thing, it comes in from China. Like, what do you think? Philip should have done? What if we told you the rule was that they had to do it? What kind of training do you think their people should have had? Who do you think is responsible? Like, was it the corporation or was it the dock worker? I mean, like all of these sorts of things, taking surveys, what do you see in this picture? And sometimes like we we would take deposition clips as well. We videoed every depot. What do you think about what this person's saying? Are they being truthful? We would do direct examination. We do videos of our clients and of key witnesses. I did damages witnesses, for example. And I would play like, is this, what do you think of this person? So as we're trying to narrow our damage witnesses, that's what we did. As we got really down to it, we did focus test our opening. So I had my partner, Andrew, give opening statement that he was going to give and get feedback on that. But, you know, I think it's one of these things where at least my belief is, and it comes to, I'm not an original thinker on this, is like what the defense is doing almost doesn't matter. It is like you have to know your story and you've got to present them with a jury with like two different worlds, like pick pick world A or world B. And so we try very much not to respond to what it is that they're doing other than to use it against them, which is like, you know, look, and they're all predictable. I mean, the great thing about this work is defense lawyers are never original, right? They just got up there. They tried to point the finger every which way. We told the jury they were going to do it. They did it. And, you know, it just looked it looked to the jury like here's a big company just just doesn't want to take responsibility against a paralyzed guy. It wasn't hard. So let me ask you a few things, you know, based off what you talked about first seeing as as it, it sounds like you go pretty far back in in drinking the Keenan Kool-Aid as I have over the years. Do you remember the time when not necessarily advocating, but 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 Keenan was suggesting that it's not the end of the world if you were to not so much read verbatim, but to somewhat read your opening, you know, so as to limit your advocacy appearance and opening. I don't know if you remember that they talked about that at some point in time. So my question is, did your partner give the opening, you know, spontaneously without notes? Tell me about it. Absolutely with notes. And I mean, don't get me wrong, like he knew it, but it was written out verbatim. And it, it, and this is a really crucial thing. And we did talk to jurors afterwards. Your production level, when you are trying a case in 2023, 2024, hell, even going forward even more, it has to be smooth and concise and scripted. And like there, there is no winging it and there is no wasting their time or rambling. It is like you have very limited window to do what you need to do. You better do it right because juries will punish you if you're disorganized. They think you're wasting their time. You're unprepared. It's a sign of disrespect. And it's also a sign of, you know, confidence. Like, hey, I, I'm going to do this thing. I came here before I got to court this morning and and I, I had this written out. It's important. And I think sort of like, look, you know, where where are our examples in society, right? Like, well, I won't this is maybe a bad one, but you know, we'll say prior to twenty sixteen, 
like, you know, the president of the United States doesn't come up to a podium and just start babbling. You know, it's scripted. Why is it scripted? Because it's important what they're saying. And I think that that's the general belief amongst jurors. Well, and so I ask you that because I've wrestled with that. And, you know, I have been fortunate enough to get some decent verdicts, both doing the more, you know, very word for word, you know, focused on my notes, scripted opening. And and it's also, I've had success, you know, when I practiced over and over and over again, but didn't really use notes. I mean, obviously I had images, I had a very set presentation. And so I I recently went to the uh, the TLU in Manhattan a few months ago. And there were some, you know, a, a couple, I mean, top of the food chain trial lawyers around the country, inner circle members, et cetera. And they were just so strident about you cannot use notes in your opening statement. And and to me, I felt I, I don't necessarily agree with that. And so it's interesting to hear that you guys approached that and got and and by the way, Ryan, what was the verdict? It was hundred million. A hundred million. And it was on the nose, and it was 10% onto spec, so it was 90 million against Phillips Signify. And by the way, where's that stand on appeal and so forth? <laughs> oh, fine. Yes, there are appellate briefs too. The, ultimately, there was a remitter motion. The remitter got granted essentially because the judge says, oh, well, this is the highest verdict in Connecticut, and it's too high. He knocked it down to 50 million, which are thereabouts. Like, I'm being a little bit precise, we'll call it 50 billion for the purposes of this podcast. And our appellate lawyers were like, look, this is a lot of money and you should accept it because then it becomes, their argument has to be abusive discretion versus ours and retrial. And basically this puts us in a driver's seat and also it's a ton of money. So we did accept the uh, remitter strategically and also in Connecticut on appeal, not insignificantly, if we were to appeal the remitter, which is what we would have to do, interest would not run. And so right now, interest runs at a rate of $8,000 a day on a verdict, which is good money. It's a nice, nice interest rate. Can't get that anywhere else. But I guess coming back full circle, by the way, you know, just out of this world uh, verdict, let me ask you this. When you did the focus groups, Pennsylvania, unfortunately, is one of three states, I think, where we cannot ask for a specific amount of non-economic damages. Now, obviously, you had a very large life care plan, I'm assuming. I presume you were able to ask the jury or, or suggest to the jury an amount of money they should award? Yes, we were. And what, what did you guys suggest? God, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of everybody. And one of the pe- people that we stood on the shoulders of here is Andrew Finkelstein, amazing business partner, amazing trial lawyer, and ultimately an incredibly uh, generous human being. So we used Andrew's company, Total Trial Solution, for animations in the trial, which was amazing. By the way, use, like, I don't get paid for this, but like, if you're out there looking for animations and things like that, they're amazing. If they're good enough for Andrew Finkelstein, they would be good enough for us. It was our sort of belief. He's very high standards. And so we were doing it, and I was actually out in uh, Vegas at a conference, well, the defense was putting on their case, there was just some, there's like a little bit of a window. So I went out to Vegas for two days and I saw Andrew and he's like, what do you think of verdicts? So I think it's a hundred million. He's like, you don't know how to ask for a hundred million bucks. I was like, nope, I don't. He's like, you and your team are going to call me on Saturday morning and I'm going to tell you how to ask for a hundred million bucks. Game, let's go. So we took a call and Andrew walked us through this closing, which was I mean, honestly, like I can send you the transcript or I can send it to people who are listening if they want it. It is one of the best closings that I have read. I didn't write it. I didn't give it. My partner Andrew did. 
it was moving, powerful, and to the point. And so what we did during closing was we, we went through Finkelstein's way of asking for this, which was we threw out, you know, we did this thing about, you know, we did basically like a job board, which is probably familiar out to your listeners. Like, you know, what would I have to pay somebody to go through this essentially? So what you're going to have to do. So we framed it for the jury in that way. And I came here and I was thinking about the number this morning and I thought about $150 million. So you put out a larger number and you say, you know what, but I, I don't think that that would be fair, just, and reasonable. I know Mikey, I know what he's been through and you know what, there's not any amount of money I'd put on it, but to the extent you're going to have to, I think 150 is too high. 140, 140, also too high. 130, too high. 120, too high. 100 million. You know, I'm not going to ask for that. You've heard all the evidence and you can decide what it is. You can, you know, you can go higher or lower. 90 million, you know what? If you want to give it, I support it. 80 million, 70 million. Those aren't the numbers I'm going to ask you for. I'm going to ask you for $60 million. And then what we did is we said, look, and here's how I got there. If I told you that the person, if this case was just about him being injured and never being able to have sex again, if I came here and told and asked you for $5 million, none of you would die. If I told you he could never walk again, and that's all this case was about 10. And so we kept building up all the harms and losses until we built it up in 60 plus. And we said, look, you're the boss, you're the jury. We empower you to go higher. You think we're asking for too much? It's your call. And so we took that leap. Amazing, which is exactly what that prime number you had suggested to them, right? It was the first number in the eight or so that we read that we suggested that they should fight for it. Gotcha. So let me ask you this. In that, I guess I'm just trying to, I mean, why did you have 100 million? And, and also in Connecticut, is it a single number that they just come up with? Or here they have to itemize the life care plan per year and all this kind of business. What, what are the line items for damages in that case? Line items for damages are really basic. It was a line item for economic damages, a line item for non-economic damages, and a line item for, non, for loss of consortium. So they came back with $15 for economic damages. We had put in about six and a half, seven million dollars. Maybe it could be could have been eight. But and this is where we got hit on remitted a little bit, which was, you know, we said, look, like this is what we suggest. It's not like it could be more expensive, it could be less. It could lead us and more. We can't really predict, you know, up to you. So they gave us fifteen and that. They gave us seventy five on non economics. And they gave us ten on a loss of consortium. What was the life care plan? How much was that had that totaled up to? Oh boy. I, I really think it's about six million dollars. Four to six. We actually toyed and I don't I actually don't think it would have mattered much. We actually toyed with not putting it in at all. Because of anchoring effect. Yep. We decided to do it, but it was not a slam dunk for us. That's a pretty big one not to put in. I know even the circumstances, but that's a pretty high number not to put in. It's just that we felt that the gravity of the harm was so significant here that truly, and honestly, like if we talk about the job ad and knowing all I know about routes is knowing all I know about my client, Mikey Cruz, all I know about what the defendant did and didn't do and why they didn't, didn't do it. There is no way that I would trade places with him for a hundred million dollars. Like just, just no way. So like you were in a case where there's essentially like no right number. Our focus groups basically told us there was also like no ceiling on what we could ask for. 
they might not have given it to us, but they wouldn't have been offended. Because well, you... that, that's what I was curious about. Did, did you test specific numbers with any of the focus groups? Yes, we did. And look, there's a lot out there in focus groups of, you know, they're not predictive for numbers. They're not this, they're not that. John Claggett and others, and I think we come around to this, are like, well, yeah, if you just blank, give them a blank slate, like you can't rely upon what that is, right? So there were several different ways in which we tested, like basically one of them was like, hey, look, they're offering $20 million, which was what they disclosed the policy. Like, would you take it or would you advise him to take it or would you advise him not? Like a very basic sort of question like that, that sort of framed it in a different way. And what we were trying to do was hit them for what we thought was a disclosed policy, which was $20 million. And being what companies are, they we hit them and then they filed the disclosure that, oh, there's one of $50 million. Wonderful. But so it was more testing along those lines. And then there was some basic like, would I offend you if I asked you for a billion dollars? We didn't ask them for a billion dollars, but stuff like that. And so what we were confident of was that basically the policy offer, even if they tendered, was too low. Obviously, like the risk was too high, but we felt confident that we would break through that policy. Like that's what we felt comfortable. We felt confident in whether that was 35 million or 40 million or 60 million. I, I would say that the higher you go up, there was less degrees of certainty on it. Did Phillips offer more money as the trial unfolded? No. I got an email on a Sunday from the defense counsel said, you know, Ryan, I'd like to, I'd like to talk with you later today. The excess carrier has an, as a proposal, they've asked me to forward to you. And I think it's, you know, serious Would you, would you have a cause? So we have internal calls and we're like, oh God, they're going to take this away from us. They're going to, they're going to tender, or we thought maybe they would do like a high low of 10, 10 low and the high of the policy or some combination of things. I get a call and he says, you know, Got a proposal. Low of two, high of four. Oh. He <laughs> said, said, look, I, I got to take it back to my client, Chris, but I can, I'm not going to waste your time or mine. It's going to be a no. And this is one of these things where this was actually one of the hardest parts of the case. And when you talk about nuclear verdicts, why they happen, one of the reasons why they happen is early misassessment of the case. And so what happened is they had misassessed the case like gravely. And the way they had misassessed it was that they basically took a position that this wasn't our package, which was insane to us. I can not going to bore your listeners with the reasons why they deluded themselves into thinking it, but suffice it became narrative. And then it just became dug in and this they're just trying to go after us because we're a deep pocket and we don't have exposure. And the VP of Phillips signified a guy named Michael Manning sat through trial and, you know, they were like high-fiving throughout the trial. And, you know, he said to me after the jury was out, he said it to his lawyer loud enough so I could hear it. We have the best risk managers in the world look at this at AIG. And the absolute worst day for us is $6 million. And I was like, you didn't see the same thing I just saw. I'm texting my buddies. We're going to hit them for $100 million bucks. And the fun thing is, is so the jury goes out and they have to go through these interrogatories. And so they go through very quickly, maybe within 20 minutes, the liability portion. And the way we know it is they come back with a question. And the question is, can we see the life care plan? Oh, that's the best question, right? And so we we had known that they've gone all the way through the liability. It's crazy to me that they're not getting an offer because 
we couldn't understand what they were doing. And this is why we actually ended up doing 10 focus groups. I wish I could say that it was just like we were so amped up about it, but we were paranoid that we were missing something. Like, why aren't they doing this? And it became apparent to us by having done the focus groups that we were missing nothing. They were missing things. But then we kind of thought, well, maybe what they're doing is just forcing us to go through trial, trying to try it on the cheap. Maybe something happens. Maybe we get scared. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And then tender, because if they had come to us and said, here's 20 million bucks, like, look, it's like, it's, it's probably going to With what you it. knew, how do you not take it? Yeah. I mean, like, we would have taken it. But that was always a concern. But it was like, they never got it. They never got it. And not until they did. <laughs> How long was the the jury out after that? Oh, the jury got the case probably about like 11. And then they came back and returned a verdict about four that afternoon with an hour break for lunch. I, I'm a little more superstitious than you. It's, I'm amazed at your, your level of confidence as you're waiting for that verdict that you knew you were going to get a monster verdict. We had done the focus groups. I had watched the trial. I had read every single book. I know what resonates, what doesn't. I had been there for jury selection. I knew who was on their jury. I knew we had demographically favorable jurors. And the tech guy was like, they're in a lot of trouble. And so, you know, we had jury watchers as well who were sitting there taking notes on what the jurors were doing. And I think like, you know, look, you never know. But there was a high degree of certainty with me Knowing what I knew, watching this whole thing, the focus groups, look, you can always be surprised, but I think I probably would have just quit had they done something like returned it to defense verdict. I would have just thought I shouldn't be a lawyer because everything I know about the universe is wrong. So last couple questions, and we'll get you out of here because I'm already butting up on all the time I said, but there's so much more that I wish I could talk to you about. Do you think that Avert, I mean, it, it, this is a, you know, firm changing, reputational, you know, life changing verdict. Do you see it impacting the way that your firm looks at, you know, cases going forward? Like, do you think you'll be more likely to try cases now that you've had such success? Or do you think you'll just continue to the case that need to be tried, need to be tried, the case should settle, should settle, et cetera? You know, if somebody told me, what is it? The difference that separates the legends from the mortals in this line of work is the legends try their best cases. And the more the mortals try their worst ones. And we spent a lot of time trying our worst cases, which is probably true of many firms and understandably so. It's a giant risk and effort. And sometimes you try cases because you have to, right? And so what's happened with us is we have an aggressive focus of being in control. And so we are like, here's what value is on this case based upon our whatever assessment. You are going to pay us or we are going to try this case. Like that, that it makes negotiating very, very easy. And look, you leave room because you say, look, if there's some thing that we don't know, like we can adjust our position. But, you know, as things become clear to us and we know what the value is, you're paying us or you're going to take a verdict. What happened is my partner, Andrew, and then my one of our lawyers, Alexa Mahoney, they took a verdict three months later. And this was a, more, more in line with most cases, I think, that most people have $50,000 Car accident case, we're in a car accident case, 50,000 in meds, surgery, nice woman, and ended up returning a, a verdict of $3.4 million on 15 minutes. And so after that, the defense bar just started paying multiples to us. Like we would say, you're going to pay us X. And we'd have a call and they'd go, that's 
way too much are insane. And then two weeks later, they call back the number. So our impetus, our desire to try cases is high. And sort of right now, I think what we're looking to do more is get in and co-counsel and sort of come in at the last minute, try to get some reps on some trials because it's increasingly hard when they're offering above policy or offering value. I mean, you trials risk, no matter how good you think you are, you will lose and the legends lose. So if you're doing right by your client, like that's what you need to be doing. Well, this is awesome, Brian. So we didn't even get to talk about all the books that you've written, your work with lawyers, which was how my partner Greg got to meet you in the first place. I heard you first through all the Maximum Lawyer stuff. and But for anybody that wants to either connect with you, contact you, co-counsel with you, come in and listen to you speak, can you tell me what's the best way to get a hold of you and where are you going to be talking or speaking in the next few months? LinkedIn, friend me, follow me, whatever you do on LinkedIn. I put a lot of content out in LinkedIn. So Ryan McKean, LinkedIn, Connecticut Trial Farm, you can find me out there for speaking arrangements. Tomorrow, I am going up to actually uh, Mass Bar and speaking at their Leadership Academy. But this is going to be no good to your audience because this will not go on today. But I will be next at National Trial Lawyers down in Miami. I think I'm speaking the Friday, Saturday. Awesome. When is that? The 19th through 21st or... It's whatever basically the third week is in January. And I think you'd made this kind offer earlier, but if I email you, can I get a, a copy of that closing and maybe be able to, to share it with people that would be interested? Absolutely. Uh, I'd love to see what you guys are up to. So Ryan, thanks again for your time. I learned a ton. I got a lot out of this and I appreciate you taking the time out of your day, your busy day to speak with me. So thanks so much, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal and catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.